Welcome to the Queer SLP, a podcast for the LGBTQ plus professional. Join two chatty speech language pathologists as we deep dive into queer culture, evidence-based research, and work-related issues. The Queer SLP's mission is to establish a sense of community, discuss informative content, and provide a space for other proud professionals to share their stories. Welcome to the Queer SLP. My name is Natalie. My pronouns are she, her. And I'm Hector. And my pronouns are he, him. And we are back with another episode with our new friend, A.C. Goldberg. My pronouns are he and him. Thank you. Who is coming to us from the country of Canada in Toronto. And we are going to get a little more information on transplaining and what we as SLPs can do to make a trans person's experience better. There are a lot of podcasts out there that talk about trans voice. But what I think that a lot of SLPs don't realize is that there's a whole lot more out there when you're working with someone who's trans that is outside of voice. I was on your website the other day and I saw a headline, don't be someone's negative experience, I think is what it said. We were hoping that you could tell us a little more about that. What can we do beyond voice to help people? So I want to make sure that everyone knows that regardless of your setting and whether you're providing gender voice modification or you're a voice clinician at all, it's likely that you're going to have a transgender person on your caseload, be it a client, a patient, or a student, or you're going to have a transgender colleague at some point. Even if they're not an SLP, there'll be someone else that you know. And it's extraordinarily important for us to understand how to interact with transgender people without making them uncomfortable. As someone who's been on the receiving end of less than competent care, we can tell who's been trained and who hasn't. We can tell who's engaged in these types of learning experiences and who hasn't. And it can be very harmful to interact with providers who haven't been trained because they inadvertently, for the most part, mistreat you because they don't understand you. So they'll ask you invasive questions or they'll call you by the wrong name because they don't understand why you wrote what you did in your chart. And they'll do things that make you uncomfortable that are easily avoidable and easily avoidable through learning how to interact with the community by getting training or engaging in culturally responsive practices. You've mentioned that sometimes people just, they don't know how to respond. And one thing that I hear a lot about is microaggressions. Even if someone is well-intentioned, they may do something or say something that is traumatic to that person they're talking to. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what is a microaggression? What does that mean to you? And also, is there any advice that you could give an SLP to try and avoid using microaggressions unintentionally? A microaggression is an environmental or behavioral indignity that may seem small and inconsequential to the person who is the accidental or intentional perpetrator, but a lot of them add up and they increase the trauma that a trans person has to carry with them as they navigate through the world and they are asked things like, so when are you going to have the surgery? Or when did you first come out as trans? Or are your parents supportive? Or the bathroom is down the hall to the left and you're being sent to the wrong bathroom, or we don't see patients like you here. Just any of the myriad of things that could be said, and there are thousands of things that could be said that could be microaggressions in a clinical setting. And it's really important that we understand what those microaggressions are 
what they do to people and how they interfere with a potential clinical relationship that you could have with someone. Because if someone comes to see you, you know, and I'm, irrespective of whether they want to, you know, gender voice alignment or not, if you're going to build a solid foundation for a clinical relationship where someone is going to achieve their communication goals, even if it's a child who happens to be transgender, they need to know that you're a safe person. They need to know that you're someone who they can be comfortable with. They need to see themselves represented in your materials. They need to understand that you're going to correct people if they are misgendered in front of you. They need to trust you. And if they don't trust you, your work won't be as effective with them. Because when you think about that, you know, that therapeutic relationship that we form with our clients, if someone doesn't trust you to act reasonably toward them because of their gender, then they're not going to do their best work with you as a clinician and your work is going to be less effective. And, you know, all of us want to be effective clinicians. I feel like I walked away from the question a little bit there. <laughs> Picture myself like grabbing your question, like it's a briefcase and running in the snow with it like far, far away. Like, <laughs> you asked me one thing and I'm talking about something like now I'm far away. I did have a follow-up to that. Oh, ask it. We talk about being culturally responsive clinicians and providers. And there is a reality that other clinicians just don't come from backgrounds that are accepting. And so how do you, as you know, we know with, at least with ASHA, we have a code of ethics. How do you encourage or at least suggest people who don't necessarily agree with what phrasing do I want to use here? Are you talking about people, uh, ASHA members who who basically don't believe that trans people should be recognized as people? Yeah. But how do you maintain their professionalism? Like what's something that you would suggest they can do to at least maintain professionalism? There are a lot of people in our profession who come from highly conservative backgrounds. And I think that a lot of what people have to do regardless of their background is sort of leave it at the door when they come into a therapy session and just be open-minded about the person who's in front of them. Because regardless of what you're taught, regardless of how you grew up, regardless of whatever your belief system is, your responsibility is to your client, patient, or student in that moment. And whether you believe their gender is valid or you believe that their religion is the right religion or whether you believe their linguistic background is what they say it is, you need to check your beliefs at the door and go into each session with an open mind because you really have to be learning from your client what their background is and what they are bringing into the session. You might come with your own, but you have to be open to leaving that out of your therapy room if you are not going to engage in culturally responsive practices. And if you are, then you don't necessarily have to leave that out of the room because you've done your work and you are able to sort of code switch into your mode where you actually understand other people's perspectives. And if you don't understand other people's perspectives, then you really have to leave yours outside. You mentioned some examples of what some people say that is traumatic and can build up over time. What kind of things should we ask our trans clients? What should we say? 
thank you for telling, trusting me. Mm-hmm. If a client comes out to you as trans, so let's say you're seeing someone for fluency treatment and it's your third session together and they say, oh, you know, I want to let you know my name in my chart. That's not actually the name that I use. And I, I feel like I can trust you now. And, you know, my name isn't Larry, it's Laura. You can say, oh, thank you for trusting me. Who should I use that name with? What's your pronoun? Are you out to your insurance company? Oh, you're not. Okay, I'm going to write your notes without pronouns and without your name for now. And we can talk about that down the line. But I think thank you for trusting me. And, you know, thank you for telling me. And what's your pronoun? And who can I use that name and pronoun with are sort of the immediate things that the person needs to ask in order to make the other person feel safe. And in order to show them, okay, I'm not going to out you to anyone unnecessarily. And I'm going to ask you a question that I know is necessary, like, what are your pronouns? If the other person wants to talk more about it, that's okay. But they probably won't if they're your fluency client. They might just be like, oh, well, that's, you know, a relief. Now I don't have to be called the wrong thing. And thank you for not outing me to my insurance company before I have done all of that legwork. Then you can just carry on with your session. You don't have to ask any background questions because you don't need to know anything. You know, now you're looking at your client. Her name is Laura and you're going to address her appropriately. And moving forward, you'll be seeing her as her gender and not as the gender that was listed on the intake form that she had to fill out in accordance with whatever is written on her insurance plan. And what about at the school setting? I don't think it's a... HIPAA violation. So uh, <laughs> let me think about that. It's a FERPA, FERPA. It's a FERPA violation mm-hmm. yeah. to out any students who are trans to anyone else. Mm-hmm. If they tell you that they're trans, I want you to tell my teacher, then that's fine. And you can talk to the teacher about it, but it stays in the school. Mm-hmm. It is a FERPA violation to tell their parents, and it can create an unsafe situation for them if they're not out at home. Mm-hmm. It is something that oftentimes comes up with like office gossip and teacher's room gossip. And that's really inappropriate. Uh, People need to stop doing that, you know, and and it's not really SLPs who are necessarily the the primary culprits in that, you know, a lot of times office staff and other people get involved in this sort of like, ooh, you know, I'm going to change this person's gender and I'm going to tell everyone. I mean, I've been in a situation where an all school email was sent out and that was so inappropriate. This is why I encourage people to get training and they don't. And, you know, it's really hard to see those things happen. But if a student comes out to you and have a private conversation with them and be like, okay, you know, uh, but you're in a group with two other kids. Like, is that the name you want me to use for them for you? Yes. And what pronoun do you want me to use? I want you to use he and him. Okay. You know, can we use that in front of your group? Yes. And then you just do that. And if the other students in the group are like, what? No, this is Natalie. You know, she is in my class. You'd be like, no, this is Nat. He's in your class. And if they're like, what are you talking about? Be like, what are you talking about? Kids are generally accepting. I've never really met kids who have had a hard time with it. It's usually the adults Mm -hmm. who have a hard time. And the kids could really teach the adults a thing or two. Yeah. With that. We often talk about in our field, you know, like our scope of practice is so broad. And when we talk about like transgender related issues, it's usually voice and it's usually pronouns. Can you (laughs) can you tap into a little bit? like other areas of practice where, you know, being culturally responsive is not really noticed or touched upon that you can think of? Well, in every single clinical situation, you could encounter a trans person. And let's say you're working in an acute care setting 
And you've got someone whose chart is all confusing. You can't tell if their name is Larry or Laura. You don't know what their name or pronoun is. You know, you've seen medical charts. They're hard to understand. And sometimes in the moment, you're like, I don't know which set is the current set Mm -hmm. of names to use. And, you know, you've got someone who's unconscious and you need to talk to the family. You follow the family's lead because if you out someone, you could put them in a dangerous situation. If that family just is not accepting you could be putting yourself in a situation where they complain about you to, you know, hospital staff while you're trying to deal with someone who's minimally conscious and you're just trying to gather information about whether they're confused, how the accident happened, things like that. If you're working in a SNF and you've got staff at the front who isn't letting family members in, I'm talking about pre-COVID, oh, I feel sad about people who are so lonely in their SNFs. If you've got someone whose grandchild is trans and the grandma in the SNF has only given the wrong name to the front desk staff and you've overheard you know, the front desk staff giving someone a hard time, you can always clarify things for that person. But clinically speaking, if you're face-to-face with someone. It's your job to respect that person and to make sure that you're using the right name and to make sure that you're not trying to change something about that person's presentation. You know, I know that as SLPs, we're trying to help people with their communication and their communication styles. But I think that oftentimes that can kind of get conflated with like changing how someone presents. And, you know, we have to make sure that we're allowing for freedom of expression and that we're giving children vocabulary, like whether it's on their AAC devices or just access to vocabulary, like, you know, child knowing the term non-binary shouldn't raise any red flags. But on Facebook, it lights a fire because people are like, well, it's, it's dangerous and harmful for kids to know about this. And it's not. I mean, kids know about it. They accept it. They understand it. And they know whether or not it applies to them. And in our AAC devices that we program, If we limit kids' ability to use the language of self-expression, then we're really hindering their linguistic development and also just their overall ability to express themselves and have a sense of self that we haven't sort of neatly put into like little boxes for them to click on. Um, You know, vocabulary on those devices being hidden is highly problematic. And also vocabulary not existing on those devices is highly problematic. We have to program in those pages entirely ourselves. And with regard to pronouns, I find that the hardest thing for SLPs to wrap their minds around is running pronoun activities that don't reinforce the gender binary or running pronoun activities that don't just inadvertently teach how to box and label people as a gender instead of, you know, actually just teaching pronouns. I can get further into that too, but I don't want to. I know you both have more questions. (laughs) Go ahead, Natalie. We've talked about different client settings and responding to clients. Do you have any advice for us in interacting with trans colleagues? What should we say? What shouldn't we say? How can we be respectful in a professional setting? I would say that if a colleague tells you that they're trans, I would react the exact same way. You know, thank you for trusting me. Is there a different name or pronoun that I should use for you? If they say no, you can be like, oh, thank you for letting me know. And you just kind of move on. Because oftentimes, you know, if I disclose right now to someone that I'm trans, I mean, they're like, okay, because there isn't like anything to do for me. You know, I, I already use the name that I use. I already use the pronoun that I use. You know, I don't need anyone's help sort of accessing spaces or getting people to call me the right thing and that sort of thing. But if your colleague comes out to you and is like, you know, I'm, I'm trans, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change my name. 
I was just, you know, how can I help? Who should I call you that name with? Who should I use that pronoun with? Do you want me to come with you to talk to administration? I can. Just being supportive without asking them questions about their gender. You know, you don't need to know about it. It's, you know, that's one of those things where like when people start asking questions like, ooh, how do you, you know, how did your partner react? And, you know, like, what are you going to tell your kids? Or like, have you always known? Or like, does this change your sexuality? Like people ask the weirdest questions. Like I, I once had a colleague come in and say to me, so, um, you know, what are you going to be done with your transition? And I was like, huh? This was a counselor and it was in front of my clinical fellow and I was standing up and she was sitting at her desk and he was standing up also. So my, like, she was sitting at her computer and as you can imagine, like my waist was like right about in her face. And, you know, he said, you know, when are you going to have the penis? And I looked at him what? and I said, how do you know I don't already have the penis? <laughs> and he was like, I, um, uh, uh, and he, he kind of like, you know, backed out of the room. And she was my clinical fellow at the time. And like after he left, she was like, oh, God. I was like, I was like, yeah, that happens to me a lot. It was like her second week. I was like, that happens a lot. I was like, you're going to hear that a lot in this workplace. And that never stopped happening. You're going to hear that a lot in this workplace. People just don't understand what's appropriate and what isn't. And like, even though he's a counselor, he does not have those boundaries and didn't understand that that was an inappropriate question. She was like, are you going to complain? And I was like, to who? Nobody has my back. And, you know, that's how I felt and, you know, continued to feel about I, I did have a very good boss um, as I left that district. But, you know, in general, if a colleague comes out to you, the best way to be supportive is by offering your support, but by not asking those types of questions. And just things like, oh, I can come with you to go do that. Or like, mm -hmm. I know something about the legal name change process. Like, did you know that you can apply to have lawyers help you do that and they don't charge? If you learn a little something about it, you know, and I've got a whole platform devoted to that, then you can actually help your colleagues just by being supportive and not by accidentally asking them questions like slippery slope questions that are too personal. And if they want to talk to you all about what's personal, I mean, I know we know how close we are with our colleagues. If they want to talk to you all about the personal stuff, then like, that's fine. It's not like you should be like, oh, don't tell me that it's too personal. It's just that you shouldn't lead by asking for that. Mm -hmm. That really helps. I always want to be respectful and not tread on someone else's life. So let's go a little bit into ethics and the role of not just the SLP, but I guess any professional when it comes to working with trans clients and students. Do you feel that we inadvertently reinforce gender norms? And what is our role with that? And so how do you balance not reinforcing those, but still being an SLP? Like, what do you say to that? What people forget to consider is that gender is a spectrum. It's not one thing or another thing. It's this beautiful, wide array where anyone can have any presentation and any pronoun, and you can't tell someone's gender by looking at them. You can't tell someone's pronoun by looking at someone. You can't tell someone's gender by knowing their pronoun. You can't tell someone's pronoun by knowing their gender. Gender is a beautiful spectrum, and it encompasses everyone and every gender presentation. And, you know, we don't 
have to fit squarely in those boxes. And when we teach pronouns, the most common mistakes I see are like sorting boxes. Like for, you know, like he was running goes into the blue box with the bow tie and she was running goes into the pink box with the pink cartoon hair bows. And we can teach pronouns without teaching gender without reinforcing any gender stereotypes. You know, we can have materials that look like real people. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times when like, you know, you can say she is walking and you can be looking at a picture of a woman with short hair and kids might be like, that's not a girl. And you could be like, well, it says she's walking and we don't know whether it's a girl or not, but we know it says she's walking. So let's move on. And kids are like, oh, okay, she's walking. And if you use materials that don't just show people or cartoons looking one way or another, and you don't use a sorting box for your he's and your she's and your they's. I mean, it's like that's another mistake that people would make, right? Is that they would be like, oh, I just need to add a third box for they instead of actually just making the materials inclusive, which would be rather than making assumptions about people's pronouns based on how they look, saying things like, you know, this is Hector. He is running. Who is running? Hector's running. Who is? He is. I've introduced Hector. I've introduced his pronouns. We know that he uses he pronouns. Now we can keep talking about Hector using he, him pronouns. For the sake of they, them pronouns, I'm going to assign them to you, Natalie. I hope that's okay. Yep. But like, you know, this is Natalie. They are singing. Who is singing? Natalie is singing. Who is singing? They are. Now that we know that that pronoun is assigned to Natalie, we can go on with her same picture and profile and, you know, extrapolate further without ever talking about Natalie's gender or Hector's gender. We can just teach the pronouns. We don't have to sort people or code people into sort of like, you know, this person fits here. And I'm picturing someone merging into the bathroom sign in my head. Like, you know, we don't have to sort of fit people into those little stick figure images. We can just teach people's pronouns without talking about gender. And that's really what we should be doing because, you know, linguistically speaking, Tying pronouns to gender doesn't make sense because you can't tell someone's gender by looking at them. So we are teaching someone to make an assumption and we shouldn't be doing that. What about for those clients that come in for voice and they say, my voice isn't feminine enough or my voice is too gay even? That's been a hot topic lately. How should SLPs address those sorts of comments from their clients? Those SLPs, hopefully, who are getting those clients have been trained very well before entering those situations, fingers crossed, because those can be really sensitive situations. And you do sometimes want to mirror the language that your client uses and then deconstruct it and kind of give it back to them. I'll say things like, well, what does it mean to you that you want your voice to sound more feminine? What do you mean? And I'll have them sort of talk to me a little bit about what they mean, what direction they want to take their voice in what the ideal voice might sound like, why their voice feels problematic, whether they're getting misgendered, whether they just don't feel good about the way they sound, or whether they always wish that they could sound like, you know, a certain specific actress that like has always been sort of like, wow, I wish that my voice sounded like this. And then I could be like, well, let's listen to that together. So you like the breathiness and you like the melodic contour that's called the prosody. And I like to sort of take people's terms about their own voices and deconstruct what they actually want for a voice and then spin it back in a way where gender isn't attached to the terminology. Because you totally can keep someone else's gender terminology for their own voice. 
but we really don't need to do that when we're talking, especially if you have instrumentals and you can talk about things like if you can talk about looking at an actual spectrograph, you can actually just talk about that. But when that's not in play and when you're just doing an intake and someone says things like, you know, I'm here for voice feminization, you could be like, okay, you know, and you understand broadly what that means and what they're going for. But what you really want to understand is whether it's because they're being misgendered over the phone, whether it's a safety issue. I've had a lot of clients come to me and say things like, I don't want to change the way that my voice sounds. I just, in certain situations, I don't want to be misgendered when I'm, you know, first meeting someone or whether when I'm talking on client calls. Um, and, you know, whether they just want to learn like a subset or whether they want to talk in a different manner full time, you kind of have to understand what's driving them to need that change and whether it's discomfort with how they present or whether it's discomfort with listener perception and how they're perceived. So what I hear, correct me if I'm misunderstanding this, but to me, it sounds like don't assume that you know what that voice means to them, right? When they come in and they tell you, I don't sound right. Don't put your own views on gender into that and just find out what that means to them. I mean, like everything else, it has to be highly individualized, right? Mm -hmm. There is a very broad range of what people's voices can sound like, of course. Mm -hmm. And so you might have a client in front of you who says things like, I'm here for voice feminization. And we were saying that a lot because that's common. But everyone who comes in and says that has a different sounding voice. And, you know, you have to figure out exactly what they want their voice to sound like in order to get there. Because if you go through sort of like a prescribed program, which there are plenty of sort of like, first you do this, then you do this, then you do this, and then your voice sounds more feminine. And I'm not knocking those programs at all because they do work for some people and they're life-changing for, for people who need their voices changed for safety and things like that. But in terms of figuring out exactly where you want to go with a client's voice, it is important to understand sort of what their drivers are and also to deconstruct what feminine means to them in the context of voice. Because, you know, oftentimes people will be like, well, I don't think it's a pitch thing. You know, I think that it just has to do with the fact that my speech is more flat and I don't know how to change that. Those are all really beautiful variations in, you know, what we can do as professionals and the way that we can use our voices. So with voice, we often talk about like that forward resonance and increasing fundamental frequency. But what are your thoughts on like the sociolinguistics of like pragmatics and teaching those aspects? I love pragmatics and I love nuance, but I always talk to my clients about that. I did an intake this past week where I asked someone about what all is important to you here. You know, you, like the pitch, the resonance, the the pragmatics. It was someone who who knew a lot. At, at they came into the session having already done a lot, a lot of research, and you know, having read some scientific articles. And I said something like the paralinguistic elements. Like you know, I'm I'm hearing you say that those are, and the client said, oh, those are BS. And I was like, okay, good. But I'm always happy to give someone tips around those types of, you know, the type of interaction style that might get you misgendered less frequently. But I do think that those, you know, societal norms are, you know, a, a bit BS, you know, that like women use more upspeak and are more, you know, passive and that men are more aggressive in their speech and take up more space. I mean, sure, you can teach those things and it's not harmful if someone is feeling uncomfortable because they're misgendered so consistently and those are elements of their presentation that they would like to change. But you have to make sure that 
when you're engaging in this type of therapy with someone that those are elements of their presentation that they would like to change before you attempt to change them and say like, well, you know, now we're going to work on taking up more space and, and being louder and let's pull our shoulders back and, you know, like push your legs apart and, you know, we're going to stand here and we're going to be loud and take up space. So I just want to jump in there and say that's exactly how I'm standing right now is with like legs apart and my hands on my hips. Nice. <laughs> When we're engaging in this type of therapy, we have to make sure that we understand what about the what the client wants to change about their presentation versus what we think a man or a woman should sound like and kind of go from there. I've gotten a lot of questions from people that are like, how do I do non-binary voice? And I'm like, you need to sign up for training because that's not a question. Earlier, you said that gender is a spectrum. And it's, it seems to be like if you're starting at the very bottom of learning about this topic, starting from from there can be a, a good jumping off point to all, all these other questions is like keeping in your mind that gender is a spectrum. And so if you have a patient who's saying that they want to present in a certain way, you need to find out what that means to them because it's not one or the other. And you may not have the same ideas as your client about what you think they should present like versus what they are comfortable with or what feels like them to them. Mm-hmm. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you told a client like, no, like that's not <laughs> a thing, like in that education piece? Well, I've certainly been in a situation where I've made an assumption about a client's presentation, which is why I encourage all SLPs to make sure that they're asking. Because, you know, and I I knew that I made an assumption and I was like, I'm assuming this. And the client was like, no. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm glad that I said that out loud. But I have certainly found myself in situations where I've made an assumption that has been incorrect. And I've had to think, you know, okay, if I'm making an assumption that's incorrect and I'm bringing it up with someone how many other people are making those assumptions and maybe not bringing them up and just telling people, this is how you should act in this situation. And these are sort of the paralinguistics that go along with it. And, you know, we're going to work on body angle and communication and eye contact and smiling and things like that, that are not, I, and I'm not talking about, I'm only talking about gender. I'm not talking about the intersections of where gender and, you know, someone who's autistic might come in, but like those things are uncomfortable for certain people. And irrespective of gender, people shouldn't be told to do those things unless they're part of their goal, personal communication goals. And you really just have to iron that out with your client. And I feel like I walked away from the question again. I keep picturing myself with a suitcase with a question mark in it, like running away. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you said it, like, have you ever been in that situation? Um, And you kind of did, like you said, you owned up to whatever assumption that you made um, and oh, I mean I've made plenty of like harmful assumptions in my life and anyone who says they haven't is not engaging in the right type of thinking about their own practices you know like there are so many assumptions that we make all the time and we have to sort of sit back and think well why why did I make that assumption and what was I thinking? And why was I thinking that? And, you know, do I always carry that bias around with me? I guess I must because I made it in this situation. How can I deconstruct that? You know, where did it come from? And how can I find resources so that I understand how to confront this bias moving forward? Because I obviously have it. And, you know, that I'm not just talking about gender bias, you know, talking about racism, talking about ableism, I'm talking about, you know, anything that can sort of come up in our profession and, 
even beyond where, you know, we can find ourselves making harmful assumptions about someone or not even harmful, but just making assumptions about someone that we shouldn't be making. I think you made a wonderful point where a lot of people uh, and most professionals, I would say, you know, don't want to cause any harm. And so one of the fears they have is, is asking the wrong thing. But it sounds like those internalized assumptions might be doing more harm than actually outwardly expressing them because that learning opportunity is kind of taken away. People should be encouraged to kind of like tactfully ask, you know, like, how do you approach that? Well, I mean, okay, so we're talking about like a gender, a gender voice modification client. It could be specific to that, but I think like in general, like if you're working with a student, you know, who it doesn't even have to be voice, right? You could be working with somebody who you're not sure about their presentation. And so how do you learn without feeling that you're going to offend? You know, I ran into this quite a bit in the school position that I just held. It's still so surreal to me that I don't work there anymore. I miss those students so much, like so much. But I used to like check in with my autistic high schoolers and be like, okay, so we're still not into like the whole orienting our body toward the speaker. How are we going to show people that we're listening? And just making sure that like I wasn't giving them goals that made them feel extremely uncomfortable. And I remember, you know, I, I met with a few of them right before I left and I said to them, and this is has nothing to do with gender, but I think it's something really important that SLPs need to think about. Like I said, to actual high school students, it is not your job to act neurotypical. You don't ever have to change the way that you are. Obviously, we want to equip you for being able to communicate with as many people as possible. And that includes communicating with neurotypical people who have a certain set of expectations of what your communication might look like. But you don't have to change the way that you feel comfortable presenting yourself. And, you know, don't let someone force you to make eye contact. I still see that as a goal for so many people. And so many people still think it's super important. And, you know, it's not. We can assure people that we are listening respectfully without looking at them right in the eye. Um, if Zoom has taught me anything, it's that we don't even need to see people to communicate with them because <laughs> talking to black boxes for like <laughs> six months there. But I think that people thinking that a part of our jobs as SLPs is to sort of make people seem as, you know, typical as possible, whether that's with regard to being neurotypical, whether that's in regard to being gender typical or, you know, stereotypically, you know, whatever gender you think that that person is trying to present. We have to really think about like, why is it important? Is it important to that person or is it important to their parents or to me? And if it's important to the parents or to you, forget it. If it's important to the person in front of you, then of course it's something that you should be working on. But it's also important to make sure that they understand why it's important to them. Because if it's only important to them so that they can please their parents or so that they can please other people around them, then, you know, that's sort of an element of, you know, well, we can teach you this so that you're able to communicate in those situations, but it's not your job to scaffold for neurotypical people or for, you know, people who, you know, believe that gender is just two things. Yeah, I mean, and that gets me into something that I've wondered about, which is the term that I've heard over time is that that term passing and what that means to people. 
Do you think that's an outdated term? Should we even be using such a term? We should not be using that term. Okay. No. So, I mean, if your client uses that with you, like, I want my voice to be passing, you know, I want a passable voice or I want to be able to pass that. Those are things that people will say to you in like the gender voice modification world. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. And if your client says that, that, you know, I would, I would, you know, okay. So you, you don't want to be visible is what I'm hearing you say. When when is it that you feel like you're the most visible? Like, what do you think about about you is the most visible? And if they're like, well, it's my voice, and you know, when I open my mouth, it sounds incorrect. I'm listener perception of you know my voice is incorrect. I'm misgendered. You know, then that's another thing to work on. But when people use the term passing, I mean, I I prefer to say you know visible without disclosure. Like when I was visible. Um, you know, we knew each other in person when I was visible, um, and I was visible without disclosure. Now I'm only visible with disclosure, um, because it requires me telling you in order for you to know. And I think that unless, you know, passing is one of these things that like, it can be seen as a positive thing for some people to like, be like finally arriving at the gender presentation that you've always wanted. But it also is something that passing as what, right? So If that's something like if you want one of those, you know, gender presentations where like you feel squarely masculine or squarely feminine, I have a binary gender presentation. And I did hit a moment where I sort of finally arrived at it. And it came with an immense privilege. I will tell you all about that after this. But the thing about the term passing is that it doesn't universally apply, nor is it attainable for everyone who wants it. So it's really loaded. Because not everyone wants to pass as male or female because not everyone is male or female. You know, non-binary genders exist. And if somebody wants to be seen as their gender and their gender is non-binary, then what are, like, that term doesn't work. And for certain people who, you know, desperately want to no longer be visible without disclosure, who can't attain it because of some elements of their presentation that are beyond their control, it can be a very painful topic. And then for others where it becomes something that's just part of your life, it becomes sort of this privilege that almost knuckles away at you. I went from someone who was mistreated in every space that I, you know, went into that wasn't, you know, a space where I was surrounded by like loved ones to someone who walks into a space and is treated like, what can I do for you here? To go, you know, I am transgender, physically disabled and Jewish, but I, you can't tell I'm Jewish by looking at me. I'm white. You can't tell I'm physically disabled unless I'm using a mobility aid, like a cane or a walker. And I use a cane half the time. I only use a walker on really, really bad days. But you can't tell I'm physically disabled half the time by looking at me. And now you can't tell I'm trans anymore by looking at me either. And I have this intersectional identity that's largely hidden. And that's both a blessing and a curse because I endure a different type of harassment now, which is usually overuse of my handicap placard in parking lots. Although I have not encountered that since I moved to Toronto because I've only left my house three times (laughs) because of COVID quarantine. Um, You know, back in Cambridge, Massachusetts, I was consistently harassed overuse of my disability placard in front of my children. And my children were like, dad, why are they yelling at you? Tell them you're disabled. And I was like, I don't owe them my medical history. And if they want to call the police because I'm using a handicap spot, like they can. All of a sudden, when all of those elements of your, you know, identity are become invisible, it's both a tremendous relief because you can finally feel safe in certain spaces. And it feels very bittersweet because other people don't have that inherently. 
going from someone who's visible at a lot of different intersections to being someone who's invisible it's just it's it's hard like you know it's it's more complicated than you think because i feel safer now and that's uh, very upsetting because like the fact that i was unsafe before just because of my gender presentation and that was what i was most frequently harassed over before I, like i basically was on testosterone for a little while like i was most frequently harassed for that now it's most frequently harassed for my use of, vis- of disability placard there's always going to be elements of yourself that when you're someone like me with an intersectional identity, and I don't even have the intersectional racial identity, you're going to be harassed for something. And the fact that it's switched over so so quickly from, you know, like, oh, this is a visible trans person to this is someone with an invisible disability. And people are so right there ready to harass. Like, what are people out there doing? They're just out there policing people. And so when we use terms like passing, we're sort of almost like reinforcing the policing element of society. Um, But that being said, like, trans people use that term and that's okay. It's just a loaded term because like, once you actually get to that point, it feels complicated because you're like, oh my gosh, it wasn't safe for me. It's not safe for all these other people. Like, how can I make it better for them? And it also is not something that everyone wants or can get to. Do you almost feel like within the trans community, once you, I'm using air quotes, reach a passing level, like there's a little bit of guilt because there's so many others that may not ever reach that uh, and and even within the community is there a, some resentment on either side because of that well i mean the thing is like may not ever reach it there's not like not everyone wants it right so you know the people who want it who have a hard time attaining that you know sort of invisibility of their transness like that will be hard for them and it's probably going to be painful for them because they might always feel uncomfortable with certain elements of their presentation but in terms of like within the trans community, I think that I started to feel more responsibility toward other trans people when I no longer had to look out for myself like that. I didn't have enough energy to give the community everything that I had before I could take a deep breath and just walk outside and go to the store without being harassed because of my gender presentation. And all of a sudden, when you have that ability to navigate the world as someone who can look cisgender and not be harassed, I thought, oh my gosh, I need to make the world safer. We all need to make the world safer because there's no reason why I should have gone through so many years of that level of harassment. I mean, just to know what it's like on the other side of that and to know that it never ends for some people, especially, you know, Black trans women and, you know, any BIPOC trans folks really have a much harder time with the level of harassment that they face. I mean, you know, a Black and brown trans women in this country are, you know, subject to horrendous amounts of violence and, you know, harassment and just all sorts of inequities. And I think that it's really important that Obviously, we don't perpetuate any sort of passing versus not passing stereotypes, but within the community, we have to look out for one another and people at those intersections who are so vulnerable. We need to put ourselves in between them and the gatekeepers and the harassers and say, no, you have to stop this. And it's the same thing with, you know, 
feminism. And I have, I know that obviously, you know, a TERP is a trans exclusionary radical feminist. And I know that there are a number of those. I'm sure that there are plenty even in the SLP community because they exist. And, you know, that's someone who is a feminist who isn't, I, I should use feminist in air quotes because they're not really feminists. They're not including all women because they don't think that trans women are women. They don't want them in their spaces. They don't, they don't feel comfortable with them around. And that's, horrible and exclusionary and flies in the face of what feminism is, which is intersectional female identity. And what we all really need to do is make sure that women are out there when they're being feminists uh, or men. I mean, anyone can be a feminist, but um, obviously um, I'm saying men and women as if there aren't many, many other genders, but any, any feminists should be positioning themselves to speak out on behalf of BIPOC trans women because they are the women in our society who are most frequently the targets of violence and harassment, and they need our help the most. And feminists who are not out there for them are not really feminists. That's the same way it sort of is in the queer community. You know, if you're sort of not out there for the people who are at the most marginalized identities, then who are you really out there for? Yeah. That made me emotional. I don't know about you and Natalie, but I think so much about our, just within the queer community in general, how often cisgendered individuals, wherever you lie in the spectrum of sexuality, they don't show up for the trans community. That is a problem. And so I think as professionals, I identify as a cis male gay spiritual language pathologist. Like I should be doing more for my trans colleagues, you know, and so being part of this podcast is one of those ways. But I think there's a lot that we can do, not only, you know, as individuals, but even as professionals, which kind of brings me to my next question. And we kind of talked about this being an issue of, you know, like fostering growth for professionalism, for trans identifying SLPs. How do we as a field encourage that? Like we know it's an issue, And we've spoken about this, how oftentimes the most qualified individuals don't always get the positions or the fellowships or our head, I don't, is it called headlining? I don't know. Uh, The conferences, Mm -hmm. how we know it's an issue, but how do we move forward? How do we make our field better? I think that how we can make our field better, I mean, is we do need to be better allies to everyone intersectionally. I mean, there's only 8% of SLPs are non-white. Obviously, Hector, you're painfully aware of that, I assume, because you are not a white person. But (laughs) it's a profession for white women. And what we all need to recognize and push back against is that like, it's a profession for white women where white women are mostly in charge and there is a disproportionate amount of cisgender white men in charge. Why? You know, when we don't see people who are even representative of the profession in places of power, we have to question all the people around. And so, well, yeah, how did that person get there? Is that person the most qualified to, to do their job? And oftentimes those people wind up as like the university gatekeeper or the hospital chief of the department that you're going to be working in. And I think that that happens you know, obviously across all professions is that you see cisgender white men in positions of power. But, you know, in our profession, it doesn't even make sense because they don't make up 
the majority of the profession. So, you know, if you saw cisgender white women in charge everywhere, I'd be like, well, you know, that's because most of the people in the profession are cisgender white women. But, you know, we do have to really make room for people who are non-white, who are non-straight, who are not cisgender in those places. And I think that it's really important to call out bias when you see it in your workplace. I mean, if you're in a situation where like if you're on job interviews, I love doing interviews, love, love, love doing interviews. If you're in a position where you're on an interview committee and someone is being, you know, overlooked because of a difference in their presentation, say something. I mean, I, I met one of my closest friends on, on her job interview. I, and I know that she wouldn't mind me telling this story, but, you know, I was sitting there, a trans guy who was pregnant at the time doing a job interview in the middle of the summer heat in a school building that I didn't normally go into because I was the default department head in the position where I just spent the last 14 years. She almost didn't get hired because of her gender presentation. And she gave the absolute best interview of the entire day. And it was only because of how she looked. And I just, I looked at everyone in the room and I like stood up and reminded them who I was. And I was standing there, you know, a trans guy who looks like me, pregnant. And I was like, the only reason is that she doesn't look like, like a, you know, like what you think a typical woman, I'm using air quotes, looks like. Like you're worried that that might rub the, the teachers in the building the wrong way. Like, are you kidding? And like, I, I feel like I almost, I, I shamed them really hard in that interview. And she got the job and she still works there and she's wonderful and one of my closest friends who I miss dearly not living near her. But I mean, just to think about the fact that a butch woman can walk into a, in a, a space, be interviewed with SLPs and give the best interview of the day and have them be like, well, you know, would she really work well with the team? And it's only because she's butch that they're asking those questions. Like, that that's the wrong thing to have happen. And you need to shame people hard when they do that. And, you know, I don't, it's, I say shame people. I don't ever actually shame anyone, but I, I call them in and I say like, well, why are you saying that? Like, what would make you react that way to her? You know, why would you think that she wouldn't make a good team player? Like I, and me standing up and showing myself and being like, are we really going to go there with me here? Like with my gender presentation? is that really what we're going to talk about right now? Like, no, we're not going to do that. Like, this is going to be someone who's going to bring a lot of value to this department. And it's absolutely not going to be overlooked while I'm on the interview committee. And you need to, I mean, all white SLPs need to be in that situation when, you know, non-white SLPs are being interviewed. We're all part of these interview committees. And if you can't get that person past the gatekeeper, it's nice that you tried because the more that we do that, the more that we push, the more that we say, like, well, why, why not this person? You know, what? obviously you're going to go with the person who is the most qualified. But the thing that I hear the most from my BIPOC SLP friends is how many credentials they have. Same with trans SLPs, how many credentials they have. You know, the, I think that, you know, Hector, you've got the intersectional identity of being, you know, a, a queer non-white person. And you talk about, you know, sort of wanting to be overqualified. And that's what I hear from my BIPOC SLP friends is that, you know, they want the absolute most credentials so that they're the most qualified and they're still overlooked. And I think that calling attention to that when we're in those situations in the moment, I mean, not in front of the person, 
but in the moment and just saying, you know, but why? Well, I don't understand why. The, and if, if you were not part of the decision, why was this decision made? I really thought this person was the, you know, the most qualified. This person is a registered vocologist, has a doctorate. Why did you go for a clinical fellow over this highly qualified individual? You know, that, that sort of thing. And just position yourself to say things like that, because what are they going to do? Come after you? Speak out. I told Natalie about this, but like I, I had a similar experience that I know I didn't realize what it was at the time. I got passed up for a position that I know I was overqualified for. But keeping that in mind, a lot of the times the people that are trying to interview or get these positions don't necessarily know upfront that that it's because of their gender presentation or their skin, you know, like their their race, like that it that that's the reason why they're being passed up. And so being in positions of power ourselves as people already pass the gatekeeper in in in, in a way, you know, it's it is our responsibility to bring attention to it because again, I did it, I had no idea. I was passed up partially because of my skin tone and probably because I'm a male, but you know, those things happen. And so being in positions to, to have a voice. And I think, like you said, it may not change anything, but I often believe even if they don't change, they know where you stand and that is powerful. So the more you make your stance known, the more change could happen because the next hiring, they're going to be like, oh, well, AC is here. <laughs> you, know, like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, you know, and it's surprisingly, I continue to run interviews. I mean, you know, for many, many years in that space. And I, I'm in a different position now where, you know, I'm working for a really small private clinic. So I don't think that I'll be in those positions for a while going forward. But just thinking of my age, I'm 41 years old. I am, and you are, and all the people who are listening to this are the future of this profession. And if we are equipped to say these things in the moment, like, you know, then we're going to come away with a, a field as beautiful and diverse as language. We're all in this because we love language. Let's, you know, let's be real. Language is this beautiful, dynamic, evolving being that we can never pin down, that isn't ever one stagnant thing. And it's so broad and colorful and amazing. And imagine a field of language professionals that look like and mirror language itself. Sorry. <laughs> I'm so giddy. <laughs> I'm making them cry. <laughs> Um, I mean, that's the dream, you know, that's the dream. We can get there. 8% is not enough. Recruit, 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 what? and get rid of the GRE. Yeah, and get rid of the GRE. Oh my gosh, yes. Uh, yeah, I, I, what a great note to have. Like, and because, I mean, I'm looking at our time. So Natalie, let me know if there's anything else. Just tell people again, if they didn't hear the first episode that we did with you how can they find out more about you 
So you can follow me on Instagram at Transplaining. I also have a Facebook page, but I don't manage it, so I have no idea what goes on over there. Um, but um, <laughs> find me at Transplaining, and you can bring me to your university, or you can just take um, really inexpensive cultural responsiveness training modules with me. You can get CEs for every hour that you participate in. I sent you a super gay-looking certificate. <laughs> I am about to announce um, I'm been working on a Podia, which is a training library where you can access asynchronous trainings. So they'll be in broad topics. My subscribers, you can pay a certain amount and just sort of have access to the library and to the live chats. Um, you can pay a little bit more and you can get the CEs. I have a mentoring tier um, where you can pay a certain amount and have one-to-one -one mentoring sessions with me. And then there's my platform, actually, um, this would be, I, I wonder, I don't know when your episode will air, but we're actually having a Trans Voices concert series starting on the 13th or 16th of January. I'll have to look at my own slide. We're starting in, in January. We have three trans musicians and they're, you know, sort of of all genres. And in February, we're about to announce one person that we have. And what we want really wanted to do is bring music, which is something really important to me and something that's just so much a piece of my heart and trans voices together and uplift trans people um, as a way to bring in January. So um, you can find really inexpensive tickets to some Zoom concerts where you can listen to beautiful trans artists right in your living room, but also subscribe to cultural responsiveness training because it isn't just about being culturally responsive to you know trans people and people who are within you know, gender non-conforming within the broader rainbow community, but, you know, we're bringing in anti-racist content and, you know, autistic people and topics of that nature so that SLPs really do truly understand the perspective of the people with whom they work. That sounds great. I'm, I am excited, especially <laughs> yeah. like you, I'm all about music and I love music and I miss singing with other people. And so um, I'm excited to hear that you're doing some music stuff. Yay. Awesome. All right. Well, I guess that's it. That's all the time we have. So join us next time for TV Determined. Because um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you for having yeah, me on your we're podcast. We're so glad that we finally got you on. Yeah, it's been such a pleasure and such a surprise to run into someone that I knew from way back when. Oh my gosh, I know. That's amazing. Awkward and, and baby SLPs and all that so baby that's, queers baby queer is holding a dyke march banner together what a year okay <laughs> no i was sophomore in high school oh okay <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of the queer slp Want to be featured on our Instagram page or be on the show? Check us out at thequeerslp.com for more information. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at thequeerslp. If you enjoyed listening, be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. Bye! Bye.